You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. What is the church supposed to look like? The book of Titus shows us what it means to be changed people living together in peace. Welcome to our sermon series, This Beautiful Church, Seeing and Being the People of God. Before we welcome Pastor Kevin to the stage, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's Word? Today's scripture comes from Titus 3, 1 through 8. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Lindsay. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. Thanks for joining us this morning. We're really glad you're here. My name is Kevin. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. And thanks for joining us on Mother's Day, the day we celebrate the women in our lives who play so many different roles, from chef and cook to taxi driver to air traffic controller at times to therapist and friend, all of the the duties and burdens and joys of motherhood. We're so thankful for the moms in the room. You know, it's it's amazing the place a mom plays in the home. Such such a central role. I I notice this all the time. when my wife leaves, my kids cannot even see her leave. Sometimes she'll sneak out so they, they can't see. You know, I don't know if anyone else has that problem, but just, you know, go upstairs, downstairs. All right, no one's around. Get in the van and run. Go. And I don't know what it is. It's, there is like a force field in our home that once she breaks that force field, the kids within 30 seconds start looking for her, and they'll come and ask me, Dad, where's Mom? Where's Mom? Where's Mom? She's out. What do you need? I need mom is what I need, dad. What do you need mom to do? I need, I need her to open this for me. Well, I, I can do that as well. Fine. You know, like, <laughs> there's just something about mom. One of the things my wife says all the time when our kids are worked up, she'll say, how can I help? How can I help you right now? Uh, and I think that's such a great picture of moms that they show up with an eagerness to help. This Mother's Day is particularly meaningful for me. I shared uh, a number of weeks back, my mom fell incredibly ill. She was in the hospital for 50-some days, 30 days in ICU, and then another 30 days after the hospital in rehab. But she just recently got to go home. She's back in her own home right now. And we can clap. I mean, your prayers, um, yeah, it was... It was a working of God. And so I want to thank you for that. Um, and my brother and I both feel just incredibly blessed. We didn't know if we were going to be able to celebrate another Mother's Day with her. So with that in mind, will you p- join me in prayer before we jump into the text this morning? Father, we thank you for the gifts that you give us. And the greatest gifts that you give us on this earth, on this planet, are relationships with other people. We thank you for the moms in this room 
who serve faithfully. Oftentimes their work goes unnoticed. Oftentimes not a lot of gratitude. But we thank you that they're faithful in that calling. And in doing so, they're being faithful to you. Father, we recognize that today is a day that's filled with a lot of joys and celebration, but there's also sorrow. There's sorrow for people whose moms have passed. There's sorrow for those who long to be a mother but are unable due to infertility. And so we, we recognize that there's pain as well. And so we put all of that before you, God, knowing you can, you can handle our emotions and knowing that you're the God of all comfort. And I pray for us as we open your word this morning in Titus 3, Lord. You are doing a work in our midst, and I feel it. We, we feel it. So I pray as we continue to go to your word to learn what a beautiful church looks like and, and how we live in relationship with one another, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would bring conviction where we need it, that uh, he would illuminate your words for us. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who all ask, where do I need to grow and what, how, how do I need to contribute here in order to see this vision become a reality? We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So last week in chapter 2, Paul spent the entire chapter basically laying forth a vision for how we as the church should relate with one another and how the different relationships in the church should play out. So older men, older women, younger women, younger men. Well, here in chapter 3, Paul shifts, and instead of saying, how do we relate to one another, the big question Paul is answering is, how do we relate to the world out there? How do we show up in the world? I think this is an incredibly important question. I think a lot of the pain that we felt in the church, not just our church, but the American church, a lot of that pain right now is disagreements on how do we answer that question? How do we as the church show up in the world? Should we be fighting for truth? Should we be fighting for a a public uh, morality? Should we be defending things? Should we retreat? What, What is our place? Should we be protesting? Should we not? And there's a lot there. And those are complex questions that Christians have debated for darn near 2,000 years. How do we do this well? How do we as a church show up in the world? Well, in the text that we're looking at today, Paul doesn't say everything that there is to say. But he does lay out his understanding, the foundational truths for how we as the church show up in society. And he begins, verse 1 of chapter 3, he's telling Titus, who's going to be pastoring a bunch of people, he says, remind the people, and that word remind is really important, it implies that what Paul is about to say isn't some new revolutionary idea, but instead it's something that was taught regularly and the things he's going to call the church to are genuine and obvious implications of the gospel. None of this should be surprising to the churches. He says, remind the people to be subject to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle towards everyone. How do we show up in the world? Paul says, first, let's talk about government. We show up in our relationship as Christians with the government. He says we should be subject to the rulers and authorities. We should be obedient. And we should be ready to do whatever 
good there is that we can do. And so what this means, I think, at a most basic level, Paul is saying is that as Christians, we should be exemplary citizens. We should vote. We should pray for our leaders. We should pay our taxes. And we should be on the lookout to see any good that we can do in society. And we should step in and offer our help and our services. It doesn't say a thing about raging against our government, raging against our leaders. His kind of the basic principle is Christians should be excellent, exemplary citizens. And I don't think it's a stretch to connect what Paul's teaching here with Jeremiah 29, where Jeremiah was told to seek the welfare of the city, and in its welfare, you'll find your welfare. I think that's Paul's general approach, is we should show up with a spirit of helpfulness. Now, if you're thinking... Uh, it's easy for Paul to say he didn't have to put up with the horrible leaders that we have in America, whether that you view you the horrible leader as our current president or our previous president. And I always like to remind people, no, he had to deal with people who were much worse. Nero was the emperor at the time <laughs> that Paul was writing this letter. He was writing it in Rome, where they had gladiatorial contests, where there was persecution, and you had crazy men with unlimited power who could do whatever they wanted. And yet Paul, he says the general posture is be a good citizen. The primary battle of the church is not to change the government. Now, in this, that doesn't mean we have to agree with everything the government does. It doesn't mean we can't call out injustice or evil. And it doesn't mean that we submit all the time. If submitting to the governing authorities is going to lead us into sin, then we must obey God and not man. I think of Exodus 1, when Pharaoh ordered the execution of all the infants and the midwives broke the law to hide the babies. You think of more complex ones like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who joined an assassination plot and tried, he plotted to kill Adolf Hitler. You think of Martin Luther King Jr. and others who, they would obey the law, but they also spoke loudly. And when they disobeyed, they were very clear about what they were disobeying and why, centered around issues of justice. Numerous Christian missionaries to this day refuse to renounce their faith and they will die as martyrs. So Paul isn't telling Titus nor us that you have to comply no matter what. There are exceptions. You know, if the, Nero comes and says, I need to, some of your oil so I can burn other Christians, you say no and you resist. But those are the exceptions. And I think we as a society, we love the exceptions. We always go to the exceptions instead of saying, what is the rule? And the rule is show up well, be a good citizen, pay your taxes. And if you see needs in your community, in your neighborhood, be eager to meet them. He moves on beyond uh, the political, political realm into our relationships with just other people in the world. So it could be our coworkers, it could be your server at lunch today, could be your neighbor. And he says, when we show up in the world, he gives a number of things. He says, number one, we should slander no one. Slander, the word here means to insult or speak against, or tear down with our words. Not only should we not slander one another, we also shouldn't slander those in the world. I think this is really challenging. You know, a lot of the billions of dollars of news media that I'm guessing a lot of us consume is filled with people 
offering opinions that will oftentimes be slanderous against certain leaders or other people out there. I mean, that's the, the spirit of our age as we tear people down with our words. And Paul's saying, we, as the church, when we show up in the world, we should speak words of blessing and encouragement. Again, that doesn't mean we can't call out evil or sin or injustice, but we should slander no one. Next, he said, we should be peaceable. Have a posture of peacemaking, of bridge building, of we should be people who tend to de-escalate situations, not escalate them, who wind things down, not wind them up. And again, in our day, in this age, there's a whole lot of people who are eager to, to wind things up. But as the church showing up in the world, we should come and say, how, how can we wind this down? How can we relieve some of this tension and stress? How can we work towards peace? He continues, be considerate, be gracious. It's courtesy. This word could be big-hearted people who are eager to find common ground. And then lastly, he says, always be gentle towards everyone, <laughs> which is so convicting. He doesn't say, strive to be gentle towards your friends. Always be gentle with everyone. Gentle with our words, with our attitude. John Stott says there's no limit either to our humble courtesy or the people to whom we are to show it. Think about the picture that Paul is painting here. When you hear these things, they sound hard and maybe you even disagree with some of them. But think about the picture. Let's zoom out. What's the picture Paul's painting of a Christian in the world? It's someone who shows up, who's not stirring up a lot of fights, who's a good citizen, who's a good neighbor, who's eager to do what is good, who they're not tearing people down with their words. They're, they're the people you go to when you have a conflict, not because they're going to rile you up, but because they're going to wind you down and work to bring resolution. They're big-hearted. They can engage with non-Christians and talk with them in such a way that they don't treat them like they're an enemy. And they're profoundly gentle with everyone they encounter. It's a beautiful picture. I don't, I don't know how well Christians in America are living into that picture. I think that there is a combativeness in our age, a defiance. I think we want to turn every issue into a moral issue, a hill that we should die on. And Paul's telling the early church, hey, show up and be good people and do good works and be kind. Why? Why does he say this? Well, it goes back to what Paul taught us last week, so that in every way we might adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. He's saying that our lives are going to bear witness to what we believe. And this seems to be the approach of the early church. We see this with Paul, but you can go to Peter, 1 Peter 2, where Peter said, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And so this seems to be the church growth strategy in the early church. This is what the podcasts were about, the books were about. How are we going to grow our church? In the early church, they said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to worship God. We're going to pray to God. We're going to serve God. And we're going to live very beautiful lives. And we're going to serve and bless other people. I mean, they didn't have money. They didn't have connections for the most part. The early church was poor and powerless and yet they transformed the world because they showed up in life in these kinds of ways. Loving, peaceable, gracious, generous, 
serving the poor. And this approach continued on for quite a while. In the the third century, uh, there was a man named Cyprian who was a bishop in North Africa. And at that time, I read this a couple months ago and it's stuck with me ever since. At that time, Christians were being marginalized by society. Some were being persecuted. Some members of in his congregations, some had been put to death by the authorities. They were struggling. Ironically enough, a pandemic had just ravaged their community. They had buried a lot of their fellow members. And the church was disheartened and losing hope and losing focus and kind of losing a sense of why are we here and what do we exist for? And Cyprian, he wanted to encourage the church to stay true to their call and their calling. And Alan Kreider is a church historian. He writes about this, that for Cyprian, that meant embodying the Christian good news, bearing it in their bodies and actions, living the message visibly and faithfully so that outsiders would see what the Christians were about and ideally would be attracted to join them. So in 256, Cyprian wrote a treatise of encouragement for his people. Beloved brethren, he wrote, we are philosophers, not in words, but in deeds. We exhibit our wisdom, not by our dress, but by truth. We know virtues by their practice rather than through boasting of them. We do not speak great things, but we live them. I think of that line a lot. We do not speak great things, but we live them. And then you fast forward 1,700 years, and there's a lot here, and I, I can't get into dismantling it all, but that's just not the way it seems like a lot of Christians talk or think these days. In some ways, we think, well, no, Christianity is not about being very moral. It's about God saving us. Absolutely. But when he saves us, he does want our life to change, as we're going to see. I think some of it goes to this extreme kind of way we think about the gospel, that it's all past tense, and that God isn't present, we think, in the here and now, and he doesn't have desires for our future. But there is a real sense where I feel like we've lost this. We've lost this as as an idea of this is our strategy for seeing the gospel go forward. We're going to live great things. And we are going to put all we have into being, you know, great souled beings who seek to do good, beautiful works. For a lot of us, that feels like, well, is that, can can we even say that as Christians? Because we're so afraid of slipping into the air of thinking we're justified by our works that we end up just disregarding the works we're called to do. You guys with me on this? That's part of it. The other part of it is just really, really hard. It's really hard to live this way. It's really hard to be peaceable and gentle with everyone, to not slander, to not fight back or push back. It's really hard when we look at our government and we see that there's evil and corruption in it. When we look at how Christians are treated in our society, we're misrepresented and marginalized and maligned by the media and the social elites. Very rarely do you see a Christian portrayed on a national platform in a way that's anything near what the Bible describes a Christian to be. And so how do we become the kinds of people who, who actually learn to respond, not with anger, but with love and not with bitterness, but with gentleness, and not with hatred, but with mercy. How do we become these kinds of people? Well, Paul, Paul shows us, because he gives these, these commands, which feels very much like, here's a bunch of rules I want you to follow. And then in verses 3 to 7, Paul, like, he ascends the heights. 
And he starts talking about the gospel. And these four verses are, are some of the most powerful verses in the entire Bible, if you want to understand what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. And so there's kind of four questions that Paul answers in these four verses. The first one is, when did God save us? The second is, why did God save us? The third is, how did God save us? And the fourth is, what did God save us to? He answers all of these in these short verses that are just pregnant, overflowing with meaning. But the first one is, why or when did God save us? In verse 3, after telling us to live good lives, be gentle always, he says, at one time, for at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating each other. So think with me for a minute. Look at that verse. Why did Paul put that verse here? After he's telling us to do all of these good, good works and good deeds... Then he goes back to the Christian's past, and he includes himself in it. I love that Paul includes himself in it. He doesn't say, for you, you miserable Cretans. He says, we. We were all of these things. Well, he's not doing it as kind of a backhanded dig on the people out there, saying they're so evil. He's not doing it to puff the church up, to say we're so great. Yeah, we used to be like that, but thank God we're not like that anymore. I think what Paul's doing is he's trying to stir compassion in the Christians in Crete. Because it's really easy once we get saved and once we get in the church and start growing, and this shift happens for most people, and maybe some of you experience this very profoundly, you certainly see it, that, that we get saved from our old way of life. All the things he just talked about. We get saved from our fool, foolishness and our disobedience, from being enslaved to all kinds of passions and being an angry person or a malicious person. We get saved and God does a work in our life and then something happens, five years goes by, 10 years goes by, who knows? And we get this kind of amnesia that we forget that we were just like the world. And instead we get a sense of superiority or arrogance or any number of things where we look down on them, we become very condescending to them. And Paul, he won't have that for us. Paul is saying, don't you go thinking you are better than anyone else. Because you, before God broke into your life, you were just like them. See, Paul, Paul, he's reminding us, when did God save us? And the answer is while we were still sinners. And what, the reason he's doing this is he wants to stir in us Compassion. When we look at the world and the evil and the craziness and all of the brokenness, we shouldn't look at it with a spirit of judgment or disgust or disdain. We should look with the eyes of Jesus, who when he saw the crowds in Matthew 9, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And this requires a fundamental shift in how we see the world. Yes, people can be evil, and people can do great acts of evil. But people are not the enemy. They can be used by the enemy. The people are not the enemy. Paul makes it abundantly clear. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. 
So we must never write people off. We must never edit people out of God's story. We must never, as a church or as Christians, take a position of superiority where we look down on all of the evil people out there. Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When did God save us? While we were still sinners. And then the next question Paul answers, why did God save us? This gets us into verse 4 and 5. He says, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Why? Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. This this verse is just loaded. When he says, when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he, he talked about He's talking about the incarnation, about Jesus entering into our world, stepping into our world. And he's saying when Jesus came, it's not just that God showed up, but in fact, in Jesus, the kindness and loving goodness of God was unveiled in a new way. A lot of times we we can use these big words about God, like God is loving and he's kind, but what does that actually mean? How do we take it out of the abstract and bring it into reality? And what Paul does here is he says, you want to know the goodness and loving kindness of our God? You want to know how much God cares for this world, for people? He came. He condescended. He climbed down the ladder and he took on flesh. And the reason he did this It was not because we were doing such a bang-up job at life that he just wanted to commend us, and it wasn't to scold us. He came to save us. And he didn't save us because we were righteous, not because of righteous things we've done. He didn't look and say, man, they're they're doing so well, like a fourth-grade teacher, you know, pizza party. Tell you what, if you get enough marbles in the jar, then I'm coming. It's going to be a surprise and a celebration. No, he came because we were broken and lost. And utterly helpless. And he saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done. He saved us because of his mercy, Paul says. Because that's the kind of God he is. He is overflowing with mercy and compassion. And salvation is a gift. Why did God save us? Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So, so what might that mean for us when we think of the world? I know it's easy for me and probably a lot of you to think, I'm going to treat people as they deserve to be treated. And I'm going to base my kindness towards them on how they have treated me. But Paul's saying, when the gospel breaks into your life, you realize it's not just about reciprocity anymore. That the gospel makes us because our God is a God who stepped in while we were still sinners and saved us. We become a people who show mercy to people especially when they don't deserve it. We're compassionate with people, even when we don't want to be in a lot of ways. We're patient with people, even when we don't feel like they deserve our patience. When did God save us while we were still sinners? Why did God save us? Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Number three, how did God save us? Paul continues, In verse 5, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
How did he save us? There's a sense of washing and rebirth and of God generously pouring out his spirit on sinful men and women. It's really interesting. The word uh, washing of rebirth, it's, it's a fairly unique word in the New Testament. It's palingenesia. It means to be made new again, to be born again. It's only used twice, though. It's not the same one that's uh, used in John. It's a different word. And the only other place it appears is in Matthew 19, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, which is, that's the word, in the palingenesia, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. And what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 19 is that history is heading somewhere, and where it is heading is the restoration and redemption of all things. It's going to this destination where all things will be made new, where sin, sickness, and death will be no more, where the suffering we experience, the limitations, the the aches and the pains, they will be no more. And we will be with God and he will rule over us with gracious, graciousness and generosity and love. This palingenesia, it's not a small thing. It's a major thing. It's, it's the ending point of all history. It's going to be God's great final act in this era. And it's going to be wonderful beyond belief. No one's going to miss it. Now, what I find fascinating is that here in Titus 3, Paul has the audacity to use this exact same term to describe what happens in a Christian's life at their conversion. That when you become a Christian, this palingenesia, this new beginning, it happens in us. That we are actually made new. We haven't just adopted a few new beliefs We haven't just said sorry for things that we've done wrong, that God mysteriously, he he generously and mysteriously pours out his spirit upon us. And he declares us righteous. We're freed from guilt. We're freed from our shame, freed from our the, the condemning power of our sins. He washes us. That's what that language is getting at. Paul's almost certainly thinking about baptism, that when we become Christians, all of the filth and dirt and all that stuff that we feel, just being unclean, being ashamed. He washes us by his spirit. And in baptism, that's where you go under the water. That, that part of you dies, it's washed off, and then you come out of the water, raised to walk in the newness of life that Jesus offers. He gives us his spirit. His spirit's actively at work in our lives. If you're here and you're a Christian, God's spirit is actively at work in your life. He's convicting you of sin. He's giving you courage and encouragement. He's strengthening you. He's giving you discernment. He's leading you. And so being a Christian, it's not just like we were kind of bad people, but we're not so bad anymore. It's not like, well, we used to do bad things, but now we don't do bad things. Being a Christian is who we used to be is dead. And who we are now is alive by the mercy of our God. And we are held in hope, he says in verse 7, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. So how did God save us? Washing of rebirth, renewal, and he's given us this promise that 
We are heading somewhere. The palingenesia that happened in us, it's going to happen in this world. And that's where history is going. So the fourth question and the last question, and these all hang together, is what did God save us to? We've learned about how salvation works, why he saves us, but what did God save us to? Titus 3.8, Paul writes, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So you see for Paul, he goes high on theology and then he brings it right down into everyday life. And he's saying, do we want to actually live in this reality and live in light of it? Okay, do good. Do what's excellent and beneficial for other people. Show up, serve, be kind. See, when God calls us to be gentle and peaceable and considerate and committed to doing what's good, it's not just that he's giving us some new rules to follow, nor is he just saying you should be nice because Christians are nice. The reason he calls us to these things is because we are the objects of his generous grace and love, and we should live as if that's true. And when we don't live like that's true, we're not putting... We're not bearing witness to the loving kindness of our God. We're, we're misrepresenting him. And we're not living in line with the reality of who God is. And I think this is where it gets very challenging for many of us because we can read again and again about the loving kindness and goodness of God. And then you read one verse about his wrath and then you, if you're like me, you just kind of divert to the wrath side. And it's really easy for us to think, yeah, yeah, God's loving, I know he is get that in the abstract, but then in reality, we live functionally thinking God is angry, he's disappointed, he's displeased with us, maybe he tolerates us. What Paul is saying here is, no, 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 he loves you. He is a God of loving kindness, and he's demonstrated his love by coming to us when we were in our sin and dying for us. What more proof do you want? He is for us, and he wants us to go and bear witness to that in the world. That's what we've been saved to. So Christianity, it's not just a past tense religion. It's not just, which this seems to be a very prevalent way of living for many Christians in our day, that the essence of Christianity is 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on a cross for our sins so that when I die, I can go to heaven. And we miss, I mean, that's, it's true, but it's also not true. Because it's such a, just a, a fraction of the story. Yes, 2,000 years ago, Jesus died. Yes, he died for our sins. But then he rose from the grave. And he's made a bunch of promises about where history is going. And we are heirs, as Paul says. We are heirs having the hope of eternal life. That Jesus is taking history somewhere. And God is just as active in our world today as he was 2,000 years ago. And he calls us to play a part in what he is doing. So this call to, to do good, to be kind, to be gracious, that's not just we want to pass the test when we die so we can get in through the pearly gates. God is bringing about a new reality through Christ and all who follow him. And he's telling us, bear witness to that. So friends, I hope, I hope you see what I'm saying. This be subject to the government, this 
serve, be peaceable. This, this isn't just a new list of rules, God saying, if you really want to get in, you got to be a lot nicer than you are. Instead, Paul's saying, we adopt this posture because in doing so, we display in, in a small and imperfect way, we display to the world who our God is. And when I think about the challenges facing the church in the years ahead, I mean, our credibility is probably at an all-time low in our society, the church's credibility. I mean, how many moral failings, how many pastors and sex scandals and abuse scandals can be on the front page of the newspaper before you just have a real credibility problem? And when I look to the future, because I'm, I'm really hopeful that God's going to do some wonderful things not just in our church, but in our society. I'm really hopeful. But he will do it through us. And how will it happen through us? And I don't think it's going to happen by us just gaining more knowledge. I don't think it's going to happen by us just reading the Bible more and developing better arguments and better apologetics. I do think that's important, and we need to be doing that. But I think the real way that we see the gospel move in power, if God generously decides to do so, it will be through us, through our lives, and our relationships, and our works. I think those things will be our apologetic. Our apologetic will be how we show up in the world. It's not about winning an argument anymore. It's about how do we show up? I mean, think about you. When did you become a Christian? How did you become a Christian? I know there's a ton of stories. Maybe, maybe you were in a hotel room and you got a Gideon's Bible out and you read it and God, psh. maybe there was a tract left for you in a toilet stall and you read it and uh, you were the one who got saved by that. Um, I'm guessing though for most of us, we got saved not just through an argument someone made, but through a life, through a friend, parent, family member, that they lived. They didn't just speak great things. They lived great things. And you saw, for me, the guy who led me to Christ, he's a computer engineer. He's 29 years old. He drove a rusted-out Honda Civic uh, that he hadn't cleaned out in seven years, uh, just filled with trash. But I watched the way he treated his wife, and I'd never seen a man treat his wife in that way before, with such love and compassion and kindness and goodness. I watched the way he treated other people, gentleness, respect. He would still have a spine and a backbone. He, he knew what he believed because Paul's certainly not calling us to be spineless, you know, chameleons who are just nice all the time and don't stand for anything. But this guy, John, he just showed up faithfully. And it really got to the point where I thought, yeah, I'm probably not going to be a computer engineer, but if I could become like him, that would be amazing. That's the apologetic our apologetic, our strategy moving forward is being a people of love in a world filled with hate. James K. Smith, he's a Christian philosopher, Calvin College. He's written some incredible books. He's brilliant. Well, in February, he wrote an essay for the Christian century, and it's 
There's a series of essays they're doing of how I changed my mind. That's what they're called. What's changed in me over the years? And in that essay, he describes a shift he's been going through recently. He says, as a young Christian philosopher, I wanted to be the confident, heresy-hunting Augustine, vanquishing the pagans with brilliance and my ironclad arguments. But as a middle-aged man, I dream of being Mr. Rogers. When you're young, it's easy to confuse strength with dominance. When you're older, you realize the feat of character it takes to be meek. I used to imagine my calling was to defend the truth. Now I'm just trying to figure out how to love. And it's not that I've given up on truth. It's just that I'm less confident we'll think our way out of the morass and malaise in which we find ourselves. Analysis won't save us. And the truth of the gospel is less a message to be taught than a mystery to be enacted. Love won't save us either, of course. But I've come to believe that the grace of God that will save us is more powerfully manifest in beloved community than in rational enlightenment. There's a lot there. And I actually don't agree with it all. I think the truth of the gospel is a message that must be taught. It must be proclaimed and it must be spoken. But I do agree with him but it's also a mystery that must be enacted. And I think the strategy of we're going to get the best airtight arguments for why the gospel is true, and we're going to go out and we have systems and structures, and we've got the books and the pamphlets, and we've got all of these strategies, which there's nothing wrong with them, but they ring hollow when we're not actually living and embodying the mystery of godliness in our lives. And I completely agree with him that the grace of God that's going to save us, it's more powerfully manifest in beloved community than in rational enlightenment and learning more knowledge. If you really want to see the mystery of God's grace put on display, it happens in our relationships with one another. And so this is a challenge. It's, it's a call to be a beautiful church, and it's hard. And I, I know if there's just so many people here in so many different places. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to understand the essence of Christianity is not about doing good so that God will love you. It's about God and his loving kindness sending his son to die for your sins, but then he wants to transform you. He doesn't want to just tweak some things. He wants to transform you. He wants to, to palingenesia to happen in your life. So it's not just about forgiveness, although he offers that. It's not just about mercy. Absolutely, that's there. God wants to turn you and shape you into someone who is beautiful and who lives a beautiful life marked by grace and mercy. If you're here and you consider yourself a Christian, I want to ask you, have you experienced this power? Has the Spirit of God broken into your life? If you're a growing Christian... How are you showing up in the world and in your neighborhood? If your neighbors were given three or four adjectives to describe you, what do you think they would write down? It's the most compelling testimony is a life of love. I mean, that's Mother's Day, right? The most compelling testimony is a life of love. In the end, we celebrate great moms. Why? Because they showed up and they loved us. And they failed, and they stumbled, and they had bad days, bad weeks, maybe bad months. But they lived a faithful life of love, and that's, that's the mark, and that, that makes us who we are. And in the same way, that's the calling put before us here in Titus 3. As we move to the Lord's table, 
and we're reminded of what Christ has done and we participate in the mystery of communion. If you're here and you're a Christian, this is for you. This is where we're reminded that Christ's body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us, poured out for us so that we might experience grace and mercy. We might be forgiven. But when we feast on this meal, we are also being reminded that God strengthens and sustains us today. And this pushes us out into the world. And we're reminded of that last day, the, the final palingenesia, when we are going to sit down and feast with him. And it's my desire, and I sure hope it's your desire too, that as many people as possible will be with us at that meal. So if you're here and you're a Christian, I encourage you to take part in this. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in the Lord's Supper, but you take part in Jesus Christ, who came, who died, who rose from the grave to save you and to transform you. Let's pray. I'm Kevin Jamison, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.